Well, in preparing for this last message, uh, one of the things I, I really wanted to make certain is that we understand just how important we matter in this whole process of serving and that you um, are important in how God has called you to serve. And as I was thinking about it, I, I was trying to think about, okay, I had kind of an idea where I wanted to go with the passage of Scripture, and then I, it just occurred to me, there's a profession that I'm just wondering, if I list the names of some of these people in this profession, they're men, and it's in a specific area, uh, and these guys are among the top five in their profession. Okay, they're in the top five. So I'm going to ask you, like I did in first service, it's really funny, there's about 10 or 12 who raised their hands who got it. Raise your hands when you know, when you think you know what this person does, what their role is. Wade Davis, Tyler Clippard, Tony Watson, Darren O'Day. Are you guys just, um, really? Joe Smith. These guys, over the last couple of years, are among the top five setup men in the major leagues. I'm talking about a nationally recognized sport that people watch all the time on TV. And these are the top five names. And I was looking for a few sports enthusiasts. I got a few of them in the first service. Some of them were in actually middle school, high school. Because they have more time to watch it. But anyway, <clears throat> in baseball, a setup man is a relief pitcher who regularly pitches before the closer. They commonly pitch the eighth inning, they can pitch the seventh or eighth inning, with the idea that a closer will come in in the ninth inning. It's these people who are relegated to a position, they're not the starter, they're not the closer, but they got an important position, they come in sometime in the middle. One sports writer explains the history around what has become really a lackluster position. He writes, as closers reduced to one-inning specialists, setup men became more prominent. Setup pitchers often come into the game with the team losing or the game tied. They are usually the second best relief pitcher on a team behind the closer. Remember the guy, the closer, comes in ninth inning, three outs, maybe people in scoring position, maybe not, but he's going to close out the game. He's going to save, that's the big word, save the game, okay? They are usually the second best relief pitcher behind the closer. Setup men are paid less than closers and mostly Listen to this, make less than the average major league salary. The most common statistic used to evaluate relievers is the save, which is unkind to setup men. Due to the definition of the statistics, setup men are rarely in a position to record a save because they're in the seventh, eighth inning, they don't pitch the ninth where the save is recorded. And so, by definition, the statistic is, is really set against them. And so, if they pitch well, they don't get a save but they can actually be charged with a blown save if they pitch poorly. That's a bummer. Setup men are rarely selected to Major League Baseball All-Star games. Usually goes to some of the closers. A setup man has never won the Cy Young Award, which is the pitcher's pitching award, or a Major League Baseball Most Valuable Player Award. They just don't get a lot of respect and attention. They are just set up, man. 
So if you're a starting pitcher, think about it, who is on a team and you're in a role and you're used to being in the limelight. You, you know, starting pitchers used to try and go nine innings and then they kind of things have changed. Now you've got these middle relievers and setup men and, and relievers and closers. And, 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 the, and the manager comes up to you and says, you know what, bud, you're like four or five in the fifth string rotation, but we're going to make you a setup man. How many of you think they're going, Yes! That's what I've always wanted to be the guy saying, but and for the team, it makes all you know, we got so and so a great closer, got good some good starters, but we really see a really important, really significant role for you. You're the setup guy. And by the way, you're gonna be paid about eight hundred thousand dollars less. No, probably, right? So I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking about this whole idea. In this passage of scripture, we're gonna look at it in a moment. And I thought, let's say at some point the God of the universe comes to you, okay? God's coming to you. And he says, I realize since you were an infant, you believe the world revolved around you. What I want you to know is this, it doesn't. It's not about you. In fact, I created you to be a setup person. That's who you are. That's your role. You've been created and called to serve me and others with this life I've given you. You've been prepared and purposed to serve me and others. You were made to contribute and not merely to consume all kinds of whatever attention. In fact, you know, it goes against this whole idea of contributing. goes totally against our culture. Just think about it, right? We kind of in this, this week, which is really kind of weird. You have Black Friday, Small Business Saturday, Sleep In Sunday. Thank you for not... Um, I made that one up. I thought it was going to go. Cyber Monday. All telling us this, but God looks at us and he comes to us. At some point in our life, he says, guess what? It's not about you. It's about me, my glory, and my will, and about how you fit into that and serve and love other people so they know me. So at some point, you're kind of dealing with this, and at a point, you kind of say, okay, I'm, I'm kind of understanding that. And he says to you, your most effective and the place where you find the most gratefulness in life is when you come to accept and understand that role. That's where you're going to be, in the place where you're going to experience life as it was always meant. You know, as we move towards Christmas, you have to think about it this way. I was thinking about this whole idea that we're called to be set up people. And, and as we move for Christmas, think about it. Even in the Old Testament, names that we consider to be big names were all just set-up guys. Abraham, Moses, David, the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel. They're all set-up guys for the real person who was the closer, Jesus Christ, right? And then, and then and just think in the New Testament, we come into Christmas, we think about the New Testament, and we think about the fact that here you have Mary and Joseph and you have the wise men, and, and you have the shepherds, and you have this choir of angels which appear in this incredible sense of glory. They're all set up people for what? The birth of Jesus and who Jesus is. And I said that they're merely set up guys, and by that I want to make it really clear that they're not insignificant, they deeply matter. 
You deeply matter in the role that you play. Where you have been placed, God has created you. And when you finally come around this idea where you go, it's not about me, it's really about being in relationship with God and understanding that my, my, my position here in life and what it means to walk with him and know him and get real about my own sin and, and walk in this way where I'm living this vulnerable, trusting life where I connect with others and I serve them and I love others. You need to know that as you serve, you deeply matter in God's kingdom. You and you alone can only do what God wants to have many ways done in the life of someone else. You have an important part to play. God will always get his will done. But he's really excited to use his will through you. Because you matter. And so these guys are called and prepared and purposed by our Heavenly Father to play this important role in his story. But not the main characters. So this morning, what I thought would be really um, interesting to do is to look up uh, at a guy who I thought is the ultimate setup guy in Scripture. Anybody know who that might be? John the Baptist. Turn, if you would, if you want to look on the screen, you can, John chapter 3. And John mentions John the Baptist a couple times. The author of this gospel, John, mentions John the Baptist in John chapter 1, introduces him there. But when you get to chapter 3 you get an idea about his understanding of his role. And, and he's very clear about being the fa- this, this idea of being the ultimate setup guy. Look at verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. So he, he, he kind of goes out into the countryside after he'd been in Jerusalem and after he'd done some things there. He, he goes where he spent some time with them and he baptized. And now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim. Because there was catches plenty of water. It's an interesting statement that he throws in there. And people were coming and being baptized. And then he parenthetically writes, John, the gospel writer, says, therefore, before John, this was before John was put in prison. So he gives a little kind of historical marker here. Goes on in verse 25. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Verse 26, they came to John and said, Rabbi, That man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. We're losing the crowd. It's kind of like, we got a problem here, Houston, right? This is not what we thought and this is what we planned. Now, I just want a couple notes on these few passages of Scripture. I think it's interesting that there's there's some, in this passage of Scripture, some... Um, discussion around what baptism is all about. And, and one of the things he talks about is there's plenty of water. Which in verse 22 and 23, it was a big deal because John the Baptist was doing something really, really against Jewish ways. He was baptizing Jews. And in that day, you only baptized Gentiles, those people who were not Jews. And the reason you baptized them was because they were saying, I'm going to reject my, my old way of life, my old gods that I serve. I recognize I'm a sinner and I need to be cleansed from my sin and I want to move into this Jewish um, way of life following Jehovah God. And so he would baptize them. And the reason they say plenty of water is because I think in that time um, it was significant they would immerse them through um, baptism in order to symbolize as clearly as possible the washing clean in that sense of their hearts, okay? That sense of confession and repentance. 
And, and so, like, when people talk about baptism, I just want you to know, we, the reason we do immersion is because we think the symbol symbolizes well this idea of immersing oneself fully in the love and, and the forgiveness and the death of Christ in order that we might rise to a new life without sin. Not that we don't sin any longer, but that sin has been now dealt with forever because of Jesus. And so when we talk about baptism... You, you can do it a lot of different ways, but it seems to be just this little indi- little note I thought, and and, and then they're 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 arguing about this, which I think is kind of interesting because they're arguing really about ceremonial washings and 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 the symbolism behind it, and, and and in that day they were so caught up. In fact, you can find a part when you get kind of legalistic, you get really caught up on the symbolism rather than the reality of what's happening. And so in in that day they would wash their hands as a way of just symbolizing a pure heart. And so they're, they're having difficulty, they're wrestling with this. It's really interesting, in a, in a little document called the Didache, which is the 12 teachings of the apostles, which, whether it was written by the apostles, it was written sometime in the 60 to 100 AD, they believe, in there, it's not in our New Testament canon, this New Testament books, but in it, it talks about baptism. And it says, if you can find, and it uses the old King James, living water, which means running water, which means clean water, not stagnant water, immerse them. And if you can't find that, find water that's clean that you pour on them. And if you can't, I mean, it's really kind of this, the symbol isn't what's so important. This reality is what's important. But how often do we get caught up and start arguing about symbols? So that's what's going on here. And then one other little note before we get into the message. This is all extra here. Um, it, it says here, Rabbi, that man who is on the other side of the Jordan, he's baptizing. Catch that? Everyone's going to him. John wants to make this really clear. That was the rumor that was going about. But listen to John chapter 4. You just go up one chapter, verses 1 through 3. John says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Now verse 2, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. And there's just a little reason for that because Jesus did not want to baptize people because he didn't want people going around going, I'm the really holy one here. I was the one baptized by Jesus, so my word counts the most. He actually delegated that to his followers. So just to have that clarity there. As we go on in John chapter 3, then look at verse 26. I'll read it again and I'm going to read it to end verse 30. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, look, get a hold of this fact, John. He is baptizing and everyone's going to him. To this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom, the one who is like the best man who attends him, waits and listens for the, bride, for the bridegroom. In that Jewish culture, he would call out, and when he called out, the wedding would begin, and he would be ready, and the bride and the, the best man would be so excited because it's the marrying of his best buddy and the bride and that's his role he would call people together he would call them this best man would do the work of getting people to the wedding he says the friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice that joy is mine and it's now complete it's full he must become greater And I must become less.
John the Baptist, in this account, defines clearly to his fo- who his followers, uh, to his followers, what his role is, and that is he's a setup guy. He knew it. I, I, I did this whole series really off of this verse. He must become greater. I must become less. This whole I, I, you know, you look at I serve and you get like iPad and iTunes and I. Uh, phone and I everything from Apple and I thought well that'd be kind of cool a little letter lowercase I with the large serve because that's the attitude of John I lowercase I John says pale in comparison to him I lowercase I am not even worthy to tie his sandals I lowercase I I just baptized with water a symbol he baptized with fire and the Holy Spirit, the real thing. I, lowercase, I am only a setup man. I serve. He's God. And everybody's eyes should be pointing to him because we're setup people. So, the clearer you are on who you are in relationship to God, and what your role is in this life. You catch that? The clearer you are about who you are and your relationship to God, the more effectively you will resist temptation, you will live dynamically, and you will enjoy this life that God has given you. And how do you know that? Because it's in this passage. We're going to look at that. You know your role. Know yourself in relationship to God and who you are, and you will find that it will be easier to resist temptation. Remember I said that John's disciples were concerned? They're thinking this Jesus guy, who you authorize, who you deputize. That's how I almost got to have to look at when he says testified. It was he deputized him, is when their mind is getting more followers. He's gaining greater popularity than you. The message writes it this way, and I like it. John's disciples got into an argument with the establishment Jews over the nature of baptism. They came to John and said, Rabbi, you know the one who was on with you on the other side of the Jordan. You know that one? The one you authorized with your witness? Well, he's now competing with us. He's baptizing too, and everyone's going to him instead of us. But first of all, when you think about this, when you begin to know your role, it it really does help you resist temptation. Because in knowing his role, for John, it was, you know, when you're working for God... And you think about it, when you're working for God and you are placed where you're placed in your family, in your home, in in your place of work, wherever it is that God has placed you in relationship to him, if you are in that place where you understand your role and you say, God, I'm called and I'll do this and I'll serve and I'll love you and I'll glorify you, it really makes it easy for for temptation because you don't have to put your eyes on other people. When you serve God and, and you're working with God, there's no such thing as competing, Right? I remember when I, when I came to the church like seven years ago, and I, there was a question I got for the first few years as we were kind of going through changes, and the, and the question was always like, are we trying to be like this church or this church? Or they kept naming churches and, you know, all across the country even, and I go, no. Honestly, I don't really care. It's not about competing. It's about finding out who we are and doing it to the best of our ability. Who is God created Wyzetta, you, this community, and how do we express God? There's no competition in that. Isn't that freeing? That's the way you're called to live personally. And and what I find is interesting, the sign that you begin to start realizing that your eyes are not really on your role is when jealousy creeps up in your life. 
As soon as you start having jealousy, it's an obvious sense that your eye is on the wrong goal or you're holding on to something that you um, need to let go of or you're, you're finding some way you're feeling insecure about God's love for who you are and how he's created you. And there's a lack of clarity to some degree about your understanding of what you're called to do. I was reading with some guys in, the, in a group that I, a couple of groups that I meet with. We're going through the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 13, 44, and 45, those verses, it's a really interesting thing. Um, Luke is writing in Acts, and, and he's talking about the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. And they're going this small little circuit that they do. They go from Iconia, Lister to Derby, and then back again. But this, this little area, at one point, it says they came into a city, people were like, really interested, and he always had people really going to tell us more, and then he had people who were opposing. And, and, and that would often end up in times where he might get stoned or something else. But in this occasion, the group said, come back on the next Sunday or Sabbath and teach again. So it says, verse 44, on that next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So you get this idea, here's the whole city, you know, all of Plymouth is standing outside the door. And when the Jews saw the crowds... When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And they talked abusively against what Paul was saying. You know, a sure sign that you don't understand your role, you're not clear about what your role is, is the temptation to move towards jealousy. And you know what? When you start to get jealous, here's a real easy way to identify in people. How do they talk about someone else? Yeah, yeah, that church, yeah, they're doing this. Or, or, Or yeah, that guy, he may get more sales. They'll immediately point, they'll talk abusively, they'll talk negatively, they'll put them down because they need to do that because what they're concerned about is themselves. They're not in a setup guy role. That's when the temptation comes. I love John the Baptist's response. If you look at verse 27, there is no jealousy, there's no trash talking, there's no insecurity, there's just a clear definition of his role so he could avoid temptation. He knew and had no resi- problem resisting the temptation to be jealous because he looks at them and to this John replied, a person can receive only what he has given them, is given them from heaven. The Living Bible translates it really well. He replied, God in heaven appoints each man's work. My work, says John, is to prepare the way for that man so that everyone will go to him. There is something about knowing your place, understanding your position, and recognizing this, that God is okay with promotion, but he's the one who promotes. You can't be given anything unless God does it. And and I'm not saying like in your work situation, you give your best, you do your best, but if you start moving into that place where you're looking at everybody else and you you got your eyes on the wrong place, God will, through your boss, do your responsible actions, he always promotes. He's the one who promotes. Does that make sense? So he can avoid a temptation. The other is you know your role and you can live dynamically. And by that I mean where you live, where God has called you, the role he's placed you in, whether it be a mother or a father, or whether it be a grandfather or grandmother, whether it be just in a friend, whether it's a place at work that you work in, the role that he's given you to work in, and whether it's on a sports team. I don't care what it is. And God says in that role, if you will take up this sense of seeing yourself as a setup guy, giving yourself to a greater purpose, you will be amazed at the difference you make. You actually matter to God. He has put you right where you're at, right where you're at at this point in time because there are things he's called for you to do and as you begin to take your eyes off of that, 
Say, God, I want to understand my role. I want to move into it. God will use that to impact people in ways that you can't imagine. So you need to kind of know your role. And it's essential in that process to know who you are. So one of the things I understand is the younger you are, the more it is about um, knowing who you are is something that you understand over time. And because life is dynamic, it changes. You might be called to do something at a certain point and called over here at another point, but God is always the one moving and as he promotes and prepares and gets you ready to do what he wants you to do. So I understand if it's essential to know who you are. You need to realize that not just in the kingdom of God, but in life in general, there are few what I call savants. There are few people who, when they're four years of age, take a violin and begin to play like this or can play at the piano, and, and then they know for the rest of life what they're doing. For most of us, it's kind of trial and error. It's a learning process and all that. And so I'm not going to go into this idea of knowing who you are because back in November 8th, I, pre- I preached a message called Prepared to Serve where we went through a shape, and I would encourage you to listen to the podcast or see that. We've also had a class called um, um, Finding Your Fit, and we'll be offering that again in January and on. So if you are really in a place you're going, I want to understand better who I am and how God's created me, in which we talk about the shape, you know, in your spiritual gifts, having an understanding of shape, your heart desires, S-H-A, your abilities. You've got some natural abilities. And, and then beginning to understand your P, your personality, the temperament that goes with it, and then experiences of your past. God uses all of that. And as you know that, you then are able to move into a place. And as you understand that and you stay within that role, God, in a sense, is able to impact people's lives. So part of knowing your role helps you resist temptation. Part of knowing your role helps you to be really dynamic because you begin to understand, oh, this is how I'm wired. You ever, you ever been in those situations where you're going, man, this, I'm just doing something. I, there's no way I should be doing this, right? There's another thing that I want you to notice here, and this is what I want to spend a little bit of time on because knowing who you are is one positive side of it. When you look at this passage, what I think is really interesting and really stands out is John knows who he isn't. Go back to John chapter 1, verses 19 to 23. Okay? It says, in the first time they encounter him, now in verse 19, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. I love this in verse 20. He did not fail to confess, but confessed openly, freely. I'm not the Messiah. It's not me. They asked him, then then who are you? Are you Elijah? He, he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And then in verse 23, John replied with the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. So what I find is interesting is he says that there in John 1, but now you go back to John 3, and you have the same kind of thing going on here. Here is in John chapter 3, verse 28, the second time John's really clear. He begins to understand who he is. He voices who he is, but now listen to this. You yourselves can testify that I said, he voices now also who he is not. Not only is it helpful to know who you are to live dynamically, it truly makes a difference when you're clear about who you're not. He says, I'm not the Messiah. So, 
About a week ago, I um, had a few days that Grace and I took away and just had some time. And we, we visited some friends in Palm Springs. And, and when we went to Palm Springs, we get there Sunday night. And this couple says to us, well, we have a couple of things we could do in the next couple of days. Decide what day we want to do it. But, one, you know, they listed a couple of things we could do. And they said, which of those might you want to do? Might, might be something you're interested in. And, and I listened. And, and they said one of the options was going to the San Andreas Fault. And I thought cool. I'd love to go there and jump on that and see if I could shake this world. Um, I seriously did. And, and uh, literally, I wanted to jump on that uh, and go there. And, and they said, okay, let's do that. So we go there and we're traveling. They're showing us all this stuff. I'm learning all about geology and all this different geography and different things. And, and it, we get to a certain point and, and I'm looking for the fault. Well, we get to, you can see the faults devastation all over the place, or you can see how these plates move and, and you can see where they're going one direction or another. And at one point, there's this really cool place where the fault line is, where you have this really cool fault line. And one of the persons said, let's get a picture of you holding the fault apart. So this picture is, is me saving all your lives. Because you may not realize it, but when I was there, it started to move. No, yeah, you laugh. Why are you laughing? Because it's really silly, isn't it? To think in any way that I could get in there without being crushed if those tectonic plates decided, if they began to move, I'm not holding anything back. And you laugh at that, but you know what? All of us, you can take that off. No, please, I'm, enough of that shot. Uh, you can also laugh at yourself. Because we often will kind of, as we start to get to normal, there's things that we do that we're just not, and we shouldn't be, and never should be. John holds up his arms and goes, I'm not the Messiah. And and there are some things that are really important to understand, because you and I are just as foolish when we think that we can play the role of the pleaser. Ever thought about that? As I was preparing this message, I was just thinking how important it is to know who you're not. How often do you find yourself thinking that you have the power to make another person happy? And it's really important when you're serving to understand some of these things. Who are you really serving when you exhaust yourself serving others? Think about it for a second. Who, who's really the person you're serving? I mean, I, I think of this, the pleaser role is another way of saying, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one who can change your heart and in some way please you in such a way to make you happy. But how many people end up doing that? So on, on Monday morning, as I was getting ready to go, to, well, it was really after that, it was, anyway, it doesn't matter when. I'm talking to my wife, and she says to me, you know, are you going to be here this week on Thursday? Because Thursdays is the day that I usually write at home and prepare the message and stuff. And I said, yeah, I'll be here Thursday. He goes, good, because I lined up for someone to come and fix and repair our cabinet on Thursday morning. I said, she said, you just kind of make sure you let him in. He knows what to do. And my wife knows that, I need, that they need all the instructions. Anyway, so I said, fine. So the guy comes over, and I'm talking with him. And he starts telling me, you know, we get in a little bit of conversation just before he's going to leave. And he starts telling me about, you know, he went away and he was out west and he gets a license that you can only get every nine years to shoot like a mule deer. I don't even know what a mule deer is. But I guess, they, you know, he showed me the picture of his long ears and the thing looked like the size of a horse. He's standing kind of right behind it after he shot it. And I go, that's amazing. How many guys did it take to carry that thing out? And he goes, oh, oh, I just was out there for 10 days in a pup tent on my own. I'm thinking I'd be dead in two days. I mean, seriously. 
And, and, uh, and then he, he said, yeah, and I took the thing and 180, I don't know how many pounds, 180 plus pounds, whatever it was that he carried out on his back. And I said, man, you must be just, you must be just, you must have been sore. He goes, well, you know, my feet were, because I was on the, going along the side of the mountain. I'm saying, no, but I mean your back. And he goes, well, yeah, I had blisters. So I'm just engaging this guy in conversation and kind of do what I do. And I just, I started asking him. I, I started saying things like, wow, that must be really cool to be able to get away, get perspective. It's a really important thing to do. You're doing something that I need to do more of because it's just there's something about when you get away, you get connected, you get connected with God, you get a better perspective on your work, your family, etc. cetera. And, and, and he's listening and I'm kind of talking and we're talking all of a sudden. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking to him about God a little bit and he all of a sudden he looks at me and goes, about the leave, he asked, and so what do you do? And so I thought, oh, this is a great opening. I told him. So I said, I'm working on the message Sunday, and I shared about this part of the message. And he's listening, and he goes, wow. I mean, he's just really engaged. He goes, that's really helpful. He says, this time of year, in my trade, I get so busy trying to get everybody else's stuff done and ready for the holidays that I take so little time for myself. I, I miss being present with my wife and my family. And, and he's just going on. And he's really tender. He goes, I kind of do have like this Messiah pleaser complex. And I just ask you, you know, kind of coming into the holidays. You have family coming. You know, you're thinking about all the ways you can love and support and care for them. But at what point are you just going to go, God, I just am called to do what I'm supposed to do. And, and I'm not, I'm not kind of trying to do this thing in anybody's life. And, and the other thing that, that hits me in this whole thing is, um, is the other role that I think, and I can try and get in this role, is the fixer role. And, and I, I learned early in my marriage, I don't know what was with me, but I thought I could do mechanical fix-it things. Yeah, you're laughing like crazy, but it's true. And I, I began to realize that when I do that kind of thing, I end up, it, it costs more money, I get really frustrated, and it just wastes a bunch of time. So now I'm in this place that when I go, okay, um, I've really learned the lesson the hard way. When the garage door breaks, I call someone to fix it. When the water softener goes out, I call someone to fix it. When the exhaust vent went out on our drain. I call someone to fix it. I, I just, I know that I'm going to break something. And so when the cabinet needs fixing, I'm not the guy to call. And then I think about this and I think of the image of you or me standing between those tectonic plates thinking that we can fix another person. How many are in your marriage trying to change someone? You're trying to fix someone. You, you think about it. In your work situation, do you really have the power to fix another person's character flaw? You just think about how you're trying. Do you really believe you can fix a person's temper or you are able to get in there and, you know, I'm going to just move this and they're going to have integrity? Yeah, look at the picture of me up there when you think about it. That's you. That's me. It's just as important to know who you're not. Ultimately, my plan will never fix anyone, make them happy, or bring about the change that I want. I do have a job. I am a setup person, and my job is to discern. Your job is to discern what serving looks like in that situation. What does it mean for you? And I can tell you the picture is always going to look like Jesus. Okay? So you always get the, the picture. 
But your job is to pray and to say, God, in this situation, I, I recognize I, I have a role, I have certain gifts, I have these desires, I have all this, I'm beginning to understand who I am. And, and that's going to be helpful because it's going to help you not move into a jealousy and get your eyes on the right thing so that you're doing what God's called you to do. Because honestly, guys, one of the reasons that Satan wants to get your eyes on other things, because he wants you to feel frustrated, he wants you to get angry, he wants you to irritate other people, and more than that, he wants you to miss God's power working through you to love someone else. And if he does that, he's ultimately super thrilled, because then what happens is this. You miss the very third thing about knowing what it means to know your role. And this is what you read in John. John chapter 3, verse 29. You actually begin to experience life. It deals with temptations. It helps us dynamically be who we're supposed to be in the place that we're supposed to be. And it allows for us to begin to experience the joy that God created for us to enjoy. Because you can actually miss the joy if your eye is on the wrong thing. We're called to be the setup guy to God's will and glory as we serve and love others. So listen to what it says. I, I like John 3.29. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And it's now complete. John the Baptist was the best man to the groom. Just think if John's eyes were on trying to get the bride's attention. That would be a bummer. How many think about it? You think of, I've done lots of weddings. So, you know, usually you've got the, the groom standing here and the bride's down here and the best man's here. How weird and awkward would it be if the best man, when the, when the bride's coming in, is trying to get the bride's eyes? <laughs> Seriously. How weird is it in life that when we're created to actually find joy in, 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 in serving God, that's where our gratefulness and all this stuff, when, we, when we're in our role and we're doing what God's called us to do and we're, we're actually giving glory to him and we're serving others, we're really loving him, we're becoming like Jesus. The greatest joy of the best, best men is they look and they look at the bride's eyes and they see her smiling as she's coming down the aisles as they're locked on the eyes of the groom. Right? And honestly, when you really picture this church, we as people, our whole entire job, when, when we think about what it means to, to, to do this, it's, it's the idea that we get other people's eyes, not looking at us. It's not about us. We get other people's eyes, like when you have a conversation with a guy who's doing cabinets, and as he's talking, and he begins to understand that I'm, I'm trying to do this Messiah pleaser kind of thing, and it's not working, and all of a sudden, he just lifts his eyes, just gently up to God. That, to me, I'm sitting there, I'm going, God, how cool is that? That brings great joy. We have the opportunity in our life, in the things we do, tomorrow, when you get up and you go to work and you go to those places, you have the opportunity to end conversation, to be doing something good to someone, by praying for someone. You have the opportunity to make a difference in their life, to live dynamically, and to allow for their eyes to lock onto the eyes of Jesus. And in that, you get the possibility of being the best man, best woman, I don't care what it is, and you get the joy of seeing God at work. Oh, it's such a cool thing. I love the way Peterson says in the message, he says, the one 
who gets the bride is by definition the bridegroom and the bridegroom's friend, his best man, and he says, that's me, this is John talking, in place at his side where he can hear every word is genuinely happy. How could he be jealous when he knows that the wedding is finished and the marriage is off to a good start? He's just looking at his job. He goes, boy, I did. I did what I was called to do. The bride is gaining attention. I and mean, the bride's attention is, be, is, is coming to Christ. Jesus. It's starting. It's the wedding's begun. I'm thrilled. It's John's position. And so I ask you to think about this. You know, you think about this fact. If jealousy, you start talking down about that, you start looking at that. What, that's something to do about your, knowing your role and what it means to serve. And as you begin to start doing this, you know, you're called to know who you are. And as you know who you are and who, know who you're not, you can live dynamically right where God's placed you. But I want you to think about joy for a second. If you're living that way, Ask yourself a question. Do you find joy when someone else gets promoted? Do you find joy when someone you've mentored goes further than you? Do you find joy working yourself out of a job? Now, this last week um, was an interesting week for me because George preached on Sunday, and I was there on Sunday, and George did an incredible job. And after George was, you know, got done sharing, after the first service, I, I had lots of people come up to me and go, man, wasn't that phenomenal? That was really good. How many, how many enjoyed what George, George's message? Yeah, way too many of you. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing. I have people ask from time to time, well, you know, how many times are you supposed to be, quote, in the pulpit and preach? And I, and I go, well, you know what? There's a, there, there's a mouth that I should be. But I said, you know, here's my job. I have been called to lead this church in vision in helping raise up communicators who communicate clearly the word of God. And, and a few other things. But I have to tell you, I get done with something like that, and I look at what's going on, and I just go, praise God. Isn't that cool? We're raising up people who go out who can communicate clearly the word of God. It, it, it's all about giving attention to who needs attention, no matter who's doing it. And I was thinking about this, and I thought, guys, you know, for me... If God gives me another 20, 30 plus years, I don't know, I'll be thrilled. But I think of some of you who are in your years like that, you know, kind of coming to those later years. One of the greatest things you could do is begin to celebrate people who are coming into this place and just start saying, how can I be a person like John the Baptist? I want to be a setup guy. I want to be a setup guy. Because, you know, years down the road, I'm not going to be here, but praise God, look at who God is bringing. Look what God's doing. I think about your work role in the place you're at. What does it look like for you to say, God, I'm just a setup guy for you? What does it look like in relationship to people you love dearly? What does it look like to say, I'm a setup guy for the kingdom?